So Nick, I just got my second dose of the COVID vaccine, so I'm super excited. Way to go. Yeah, I'm not feeling that great, but um, I still am really glad that I got this vaccine and I was able to read much more about it on the OBG Project's website where they have a ton of great information on COVID-19, both in and out of pregnancy. Yeah, the OBG Project, again, has an excellent online library. When you go straight to their website, obgproject.com, there's things ranging from COVID information, primary care information, the second trimester ultrasound atlas, grand rounds reports. There's just a lot of really, really useful stuff. You can also sign up for OBG First, which is their subscription service, um, where you can have access to all of the above, as well as create your own bookshelf so that you can go back to all the articles that you like to read about. So if you want to get a free year of OBG first. If you're a chief resident, head on over to our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. Check out the sidebar and there'll be a link there for you to get your free year of OBG first. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is... Creogs over coffee. So today we're going to be doing our episode on a very important topic, external cephalic aversion. Um, I also can't believe that we haven't done this topic yet, Nick. (laughs) Kind of continuing a theme of uh, things we should have covered but never did. (laughs) Exactly. So what are our learning objectives for today? Uh, So today we'll discuss considerations for candidacy and success for ECV. We'll provide an overview of counseling and pre-procedure preparation for ECV, and then we'll review the technical procedural steps of ECV. Let's start out, though, with just like some background. Yeah. So, you know, breach presentation occurs in about three to four percent of term pregnancies with a significant number of these patients ultimately needing to deliver by cesarean section. Previously on a podcast, we had talked about considerations for a single breach vaginal delivery. And while that's a lot to f- a lot of fun to talk about and to think about doing, um, breach deli- delivery, unfortunately, is not the standard of care here in the United States. So with the cesarean section levels rising, we always want to think about how we can avoid that primary C-section. And the way to do that, of course, is an external cephalic version. Essentially, an ECV is using pressure on the pregnant person's abdomen to achieve movement of the fetus from breech or whatever other position to a cephalic presentation. Um, And in order to offer this service to our patients, ACOG recommends an evaluation of presentation beginning at 36 weeks of gestation to be able to recognize anything other than cephalic presentation. So Nick, talk to me a little bit about some considerations prior to ECV, like who should we try it on? Who should we talk about it to? What makes a person a good candidate? Yeah, so good candidates will have a couple of things in mind. Patients should be at least 37 weeks gestational age with an EFW over 2,500 grams because spontaneous version after this gestational age and above that gestational weight are less likely. If complications arise in this circumstance, the infant's term, and so you can deliver emergently with less concern for a sequelae of prematurity in that case. Patients who are good candidates are generally of higher parity too. There are positive associations between multiparity and the success of ECV. 
Certainly, if you think about the position that the baby's in, if baby's in a transverse or oblique presentation, being totally breech isn't a contraindication, but if you don't have to travel as far, of course, it's going to be a little bit easier. And then patients who have less cervical dilation and are, of course, in higher station are going to be better candidates too. Obviously, if you have cervical dilation and the baby's lower in the pelvis, it's going to be tougher to turn. There also are actually a number of things that you think might make a difference but are actually less important. And kind of reading through the practice bullets, and I thought this was sort of interesting to think about because um, I think some of these actually go through my mind as classically being like poor considerations. Right. So one is placental location. Um, studies apparently are mixed in regards to placental location. Um, there are some authors that have found improved success, of course, with posterior placentas, but others have found no association. The one that I always heard about in residency was amniotic fluid volume. Um, and while it makes intrinsic sense that higher levels of fluid lead to lower success rates, studies actually haven't really demonstrated that conclusively. Um, so low amniotic fluid volume is not necessarily a contraindication. Maternal obesity is something that also doesn't necessarily make a difference and studies have been mixed. TOLAC candidates is also an interesting consideration too, where the most recent update to the ECV bulletin addressed this, noting there's really limited evidence for women with pre-existing scars, but no cases of uterine rupture have been reported from four trials where it was offered. Um, so it's reasonable to consider in someone who wants a TOLAC. And then ongoing labor is also a situation that I've never been faced with um, of trying to vert somebody who's actively laboring, um, but there's limited evidence that ECV can be successful during early labor and thus lowering the rate of cesarean delivery and reducing length of hospital stay. So next time you have somebody who's in triage one centimeter in breach, maybe try to vert them. Faye, take me through how you counsel somebody about ECV. Right. So, you know, of course, whenever we talk to somebody about any procedure, I think about risks, benefits, and alternatives. So to start off um, in terms of benefits, you know, why would we do an ECV? What's What good are we achieving? Certainly one benefit is the option of avoiding a cesarean delivery, right? Um, there is a significant reduction in cesarean birth rate for women who have a successful ECV in randomized studies, and that makes sense um, because, of course, you are giving that woman a chance to labor when they're cephalic versus they're 100% going to be getting a C-section if they're breached. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, the risk is still higher for cesarean in the ECV population compared to those who present with a fetus in cephalic presentation, and I'm not really sure why that is. Yeah, that is interesting. Right. And this also comes with the benefits of a greater likelihood of vaginal delivery, most notably fewer hospital days and lower odds of endometritis and sepsis, right? So all the benefits of having a vaginal delivery over a C-section. Um, and finally, the success rate of ECV for all comers in trials is around 60%. So it is a little bit better than 50-50. But of course, you know, the success rate is likely going to depend on your patient and her specific uh, indications and as well as um, those things that we talked about that might make them a good candidate. So what are the risks? I tell my patients that an ECV is pretty uncomfortable and certainly this is a big consideration when it comes to an ECV. It makes sense because you essentially have two people mashing on your belly and um, trying to get this baby to move. And when you're pregnant, you can imagine how that would be really, really uncomfortable. 
Certainly, we can help with that by giving pain medications parenterally, which I actually haven't really done. Usually, um, you know, when patients are concerned about discomfort, we talk about giving them an epidural to try to reduce the element of discomfort. Um, and there is evidence that epidural anesthesia may increase success rates. Um, this should particularly be considered for women who have had an unsuccessful ECV at 37 weeks but wish to retry at 39 weeks, you know, those people who are really motivated to try and have a vaginal delivery. Um, and that's because a placement of an epidural followed by an ECV attempt, um, if unsuccessful, means that you already have anesthesia in place and you can proceed directly with the C-section. Or similarly, um, if you are successful, you can then proceed with their induction of labor. Another risk is fetal heart rate abnormalities. So these are often transient, um, but sometimes by pushing babies a certain way, that can cause there to be certain heart rate decelerations, um, but usually this will resolve with a pause or cessation of the procedure is what I tell most patients. Additional serious risks that I tell people um, that are relatively uncommon include things like placental abruption, umbilical cord prolapse, membrane rupture, stillbirth, and fetal maternal hemorrhage um, have all been reported after ECV. All occur at rates of much less than 1%. Um, and finally, you do have to counsel your patients that there's a possible need for emergent delivery because of those rare risks above um, and also because of possible fetal heart rate abnormalities that do not resolve. You should definitely counsel your patients about the very rare possibility of needing an emergent cesarean section when an ECV attempted. And that is why you should only attempt ECV in a place where cesarean is readily available and this should not be done, for example, in the office setting. All right, so we've talked about the benefits, we've talked about the risks. The alternatives, of course, is to not perform an ECV and go ahead and perform that breach cesarean delivery. Um, so now that we've talked to our patient, if she has consented, what do we do in order to get this ECV going, Nick? All right, so let's break it out step by step. First step um, is to get an NST. No, certainly like a non-reactive or a suspicious NST immediately prior to performing a procedure that might alter the fetal heart rate um, or stress the baby out is probably worth reconsidering, right? Um, so if you have a bad NST, I wouldn't necessarily proceed with an ECV. No. Um, so that's, I think, first and easiest step. Second step is probably optional, but considering a cervical exam is, I think, a reasonable thing to do. So if your patient has, like, for instance, advanced cervical dilation and you end up in the sticky situation of causing membrane rupture, it's good to know whether that three centimeter cervix might drop a cord. Um, again, the rates of cord prolapse and such with PROM are pretty low overall, but kind of something that you keep in the back of your mind as you're preparing for what may come. Additionally, if you're doing an ECV at over 39 weeks, this will let you consider what to use for induction subsequently, so it saves you a minute. After that, I would do an ultrasound, um, and you're going to need the ultrasound for the procedure anyways, so keep it in the room with you. Um, but take a look at a couple things prior to starting. You know, Figure out what the true presentation is. Um, frank versus complete breach, transverse, oblique lie, um, and as a quick review, what are frank and complete breach? So I always think of this as Frank smells his feet, F and F. And so what that means is that the baby is breech, meaning butt down, but the legs are kind of somewhere up near the head. So baby's like almost folded in half, if you can think about it that way. A complete breech is still breech. 
um, but the feet are not really near the head. I think of like a baby kind of sitting in like a cross-legged position, for example. I'm never going to forget Frank smell of his feet now. That was so helpful. <laughs> well, you're welcome. <laughs> um, continuing on with the ultrasounds, the other things to take a look at um, that we mentioned earlier in terms of might impact your success rate might not include like the fluid volume around the fetus um, as well as the placental location. And then the next is to get your orders in, right? Or at least if you're the resident, you're going to get your orders in. Um, I haven't put in orders in a long time. It's a nice perk of being a fellow. <laughs> don't but brag don't, about it so much. Don't brag about it too much. Sorry, all you UW residents that might be listening. The things to consider are your medications, right? So kind of three things to think about. One would be pain medications. As we already mentioned, you can consider pain meds in the form of parenteral meds or epidural anesthesia. Though if you do choose to use IV medications, be aware of the potential consequences on the fetal heart rate of the med that you're giving. For instance, if you're gonna give butorphanol or statol um, or morphine or something like that. Tocolytics um, are also part of the medications, and I would say this one is more of kind of a requirement for an ECV. Classically, we give terbutaline, the beta-2 agonist. With relaxing the uterus, a randomized trial has shown that terbutaline doubles your chances of a successful ECV, so it's certainly worth keeping on board and having. There's not much data regarding other relaxants like nitroglycerin, but be aware that the beta agonist effect of terbutaline often causes tachycardia, so you should avoid that in patients where you have tachycardia as a contraindication. Last medication to consider, again, as a plus or minus, will be Rogam, because, you know, if you're going to give Rogam after a fall on the ice or after a car accident, you should be considering it after the trauma we're inflicting on the uterus of trying to flip the baby around. Um, so if your patient has negative blood type and not certain certain paternity of negative blood type as well, um, again, that patient is potentially able to be sensitized. Um, if delivery won't be performed in the next 72 hours, a dose should be given. And remember, the half-life of Rogam is about 12 weeks, and if you're about four weeks out from having your 28-week prophylactic dose, that's when you should be redosing. So for anybody who's considering an ECV at term, they probably will need to get a dose. You can re-review our episode on preventing allo immunization for more information on that. All right, Faye, now it's procedure time. Yeah. So with um, an ECV, you know, certainly I've heard of people doing it by themselves, but usually, um, especially where we've trained, where there's lots of hands on board. So usually we can do this with one or two people and sometimes even a third person um, who's ultrasounding. I tend to use gel on the maternal abdomen to prevent trauma to the skin and facilitate easy ultrasound access for routine fetal heart checks in between um, trying to turn the baby. Classically, the procedure involves one person using one or two hands to lift the breech out of the pelvis um, and then using pressure on the fetal head to facilitate a forward or a backward roll. The procedure is considered successful when cephalic presentation is accomplished and the procedure should be abandoned if there's a prolonged bradycardia, extreme maternal discomfort, or if a few attempts have been unsuccessful. There's really no right or wrong number in terms of attempts, but um, you know, having attempted 
more than a few of these, you kind of get a sense of whether or not they'll roll. Usually, institutions will have a monitoring protocol post-ECV attempt. ACOG recommends at least 30 minutes of continuous monitoring, regardless of success. And I know that, you know, in our institution where we've previously trained Nick, we had recommended at least an hour of monitoring mm-hmm. afterwards um, to just make sure that the uh, the fetal heart rate continues to remain normal and that you're not causing any type of abruption or anything like that. All right, Faye, I think we covered ECV maybe late, but better late than never. Um, Why don't we summarize really quick? Sure. So we first talked about the background of breach presentation and ECV. So um, breach presentation occurs in about 3 to 4% of term pregnancies. And so um, in order to prevent the primary cesarean section or cesarean section, if your patient would like, ECV is the answer. Considering things prior to ECV, good candidates will be at least 37 weeks with an estimated fetal weight over 2,500 grams. Increased success is associated with multiparity, patients in transverse or oblique presentation as opposed to a fully breech presentation, and patients who have less cervical dilation and are at higher station. Things that don't make as much of a difference as you might think include placental location, amniotic fluid volume, obesity, lack and ongoing labor. We talked about counseling patients about risks and benefits. In terms of benefits of an ECV, certainly a successful ECV is going to decrease their risk of a cesarean section. And with that comes all the benefits of having a vaginal delivery uh, instead of a cesarean delivery. We also talked about the fact that a success rate of ECV in trials is about 60%. There are risks to ECV just like any other procedure that we perform, and those include maternal discomfort, fetal heart rate abnormalities, um, additional serious risks that are quite rare, things like abruption, umbilical cord prolapse, membrane rupture, stillbirth, or fetal maternal hemorrhage. And finally, I always counsel my patient on the possible need for emergent delivery, and that is why ECV should always be performed in a place where cesarean delivery is readily available. After you consent your patient, we outlined five steps in order to do the procedure. So first, start with an NST. Next, consider a cervical exam. Then do your ultrasounds, doing a quick survey. Remember, Frank smells his feet in terms of Frank versus complete breach presentations. Thank you, Faye. Then you put in your orders after that looking at pain medications if you're using them, a tocolytic such as terbutaline, which doubles your chance of success, and then rogium if necessary for negative RH status. Finally, with procedure time, have some help usually with one or two extra people. Use lots of gel on mom's abdomen to prevent trauma to the skin and be able to get the ultrasound in for heart rate checks. Try a forward or a backward roll. Eventually when you do enough of these, you'll get a sense of whether it's gonna work or not. Um, And then do some post-procedure monitoring at least 30 minutes per ACOG. All right, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Kriogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the episode today, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media, on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee. And if you want to give us some support, go ahead and go to our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. You can find show notes for this episode and every one of our previous episodes on our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. And if you have a correction for this show or any other show or just want to say hi to us, give us an email at creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. <laughs>